From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hey, Dana. Hi, Mark. The Wedderburn Meteorite. Have you heard of it? I didn't even know meteorites had names. <laughs> well, I stumbled across an article about it the other day. So in 1951, outside the town of Wedderburn in Victoria, Australia, this guy finds an apple-sized piece of metal by the side of the road. He takes it to the Museum of Victoria, where it's determined to be a meteorite, and pieces of this thing were sliced off and sent to scientists around the world for analysis. The meteorite is mostly iron and nickel, indicating that it was likely part of the core of a doomed planet that got smashed by some other planet or moon or asteroid. And after billions of years in the asteroid belt, it made its way to Australia. So why was it in the news? Well, (laughs) good question. So some research at Caltech recently found that it contains a mineral not previously found in nature, Fe5C2, a kind of iron carbide. So apparently there are 500 to 600,000 minerals discovered or created in the lab, but less than 6,000 are found in nature. This is a new one. And only when a mineral is found in nature did they get to name it. So they got to name this one, and it's called Edscottite. After this cosmochemist, yes, that's a thing, at the University of Hawaii named Ed Scott. So Edscottite. Very cool. Yeah, right? (laughs) That was my first thought too. But what could this thing be used for? What do you think? Batteries. Batteries, sure. I, I don't know about that. But, uh, you know, it turns out that nothing, really, as far as I can tell. But it is a byproduct of iron smelting. So it is it exists out there in the world, but it's just not in nature except in this little meteorite. Okay, so now that we're all thinking about metals, let's get into today's topic, metals that can be used for stuff. I don't know about you, Dana, but I can't really see a way around metals demand. It seems like we always need them. That may be true. In a high-carbon or low-carbon economy, there is a need for metals. Cobalt, lithium, nickel for batteries, rare earths for all kinds of electronics, steel for wind turbines and solar panels, and the list goes on. Today, we'll be talking with Sophie Liu, who leads BNF's metals analysis, and we'll focus on the battery metals. We'll get into the supply and demand for metals used in battery production and some of the very real challenges in getting the stuff out of the ground. Our conversation is based on a report titled 2H 2019 Battery Metals Outlook Demand Realities. BNF users can get this report on bnef.com, the BNF mobile app, or on the Bloomberg terminal at BNF Go. Please note that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear our full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Dana Perkins. And I'm Mark Taylor. And you're listening to Switched On, the BNF podcast. Hi, Sophie. Thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. So this market outlook is about the battery metals. What are the main battery metals we should be worried about or concerned with? Sure. Um, In our outlook, we focus primarily on lithium, cobalt, and nickel. Um, And when we do the supply and demand forecast for these big three, we do focus on the battery grade material that is produced for these three commodities. We also do look a little bit at some of the other uh, metals that go into lithium ion batteries. So this would include manganese, graphite, uh, copper, uh, aluminum. Um, But uh, in general, though, the big three are lithium, cobalt and nickel. 
This report is half yearly, but how far out do we look regarding the supply and demand balance? Sure. Um, Our demand forecast goes out to 2030, and then our supply forecast goes out to 2025 at a de-risk level. Uh, We do have a a view out to 2030, but we normally don't like to take a de-risked view on each of the assets uh, uh, after 2025 because of the lack of information. So it's mostly a, um, a short to medium term outlook. It's basically from now until 2025. In the nearer term, what's going to be in short supply? Uh, in the near term, so right now it doesn't look like we have any uh, major shortages pen- pending um, for uh, any of the uh, battery materials. So uh, lithium, whether it be hydroxide or carbonate, are roughly in balance for 2019. Um, and then uh, cobalt is uh, actually a little bit oversupplied. And then nickel, specifically nickel sulfate that goes into batteries, is uh, currently, according to our view, still supplied. But you go a little bit further out to about 2023, and that's really when we start experiencing some potential shortages in um, um, cobalt and nickel. And then lithium hydroxide, um, maybe even a little bit earlier because of the uh, potential bottleneck in conversion capacity. What's the reason for the shortage in cobalt supply? Um, the shortage in cobalt supply really has more to do with the fact that uh, sort of insecurity and uh, instability in the Congo has impacted uh, the DRC, excuse me, the Democratic Republic of Congo, has sort of impacted um, the larger miners' um, development plans for new capacity expansion inside of that market and has actually caused, for, uh, caused them to furlough uh, some existing capacity in preparation for uh, sort of reassessing because they're, um, they have to install like new processing equipment as well as the they have to sort of uh, reassess the impact of the new uh, mining code that came into effect last year in the Congo and how that impacts the economics of the mining for cobalt in that market, particularly since cobalt prices have come down quite a bit. That's like that's really the bottleneck going into 2023, 2024. But in the near, near term, so even just like in the next year or so, we could even potentially experience a, a, um, a sudden shortfall in the cobalt market if anything um, destabilizing happens in that uh, specific country, and um, that may cause or disrupt may cause disruptions to the outflow of cobalt from that market. So you mean trade? Uh, no, no, this is not trade. This is basically just the Congo um, experiencing political in- instability because so they just got a new president that just came in in January. There's a lot of um, there's still he has not fully consolidated his power. There's still a lot of question as to whether or not his incumbent retains a decent amount of control over the market. In the last uh, week or so, we've been hearing news about, you know, the um, the national government sending in troops to, quote unquote, protect um, the mining assets. Um, and to essentially push away uh, artisanal miners, so small-scale miners, from um, mining along the outskirts of uh, the the big mines for Glencore and for Chanamali and for other companies. Two clarifying questions. I think you just touched on the first. One is, is DRC the main source of cobalt in the world? And two, who are the majors that you talked about in that market? You mentioned Glencore and, and others. Are there others? Yes. Um, so over 70% of the cobalt resource that is mined um, is mined from, from the Congo. Um, so 70% of the refined, uh, sorry, 70% of the mined resource comes from the Congo. And then within the Congo, the biggest market shareholders really are Chanamali, uh, Glencore, Eurasia Resources Group, um, ERG, I think they've um, changed their name now. And um, there's a, a few other companies kind of um, uh, throughout that also own things like uh, Kemef and others. Um, the Chinese companies, if you aggregate them all together, uh, own 
own something close to a half, if not more, of the cobalt resource inside of the Congo. And then their dominance of the market share of cobalt increases significantly when you then go to the next step, which is the refinery. So cobalt is exported from Congo, and a lot of it is exported back into China, where many of the Chinese companies, particularly Huayo, China Huayo, um, and then um, Jingchuan and a few other companies, they are some of the biggest refineries, refiners of cobalt uh, in the world. While we're talking about China, I'm thinking, you know, I've read here in your note that 50% of the batteries in the world are actually manufactured in China. And then I think about the trade wars that are going on right now between the U.S. and China. Is that going to pose a problem to the battery market in the U.S.? Um, I don't think so. So we looked at a little bit at the uh, the uh, trade in critical mi- minerals and materials that go into the battery supply chain between the U.S. and China. And actually, the direct trade in raw materials is relatively low. There are a few things that may be potentially subject to higher tariffs. But um, at the end of the day, there's actually not as much trade in the material supply chain uh, between the two countries. Usually, material that is mined in a third country, moved to China to be refined, is then sold to a third country that is then put into a battery component, which is then um, potentially sold to the U.S. So uh, usually they're trade partners in um, uh, Japan and and possibly even Europe uh, where that happens. The direct trade of batteries between China and the U.S., I think one thing we can't forget is that, um, okay, so over 50% of the battery supply chain is in China. That is true, right? And the battery manufacturing capacity is also over 50% in China. But uh, over 50% of battery demand will also happen in China. And so much of the batteries that are being made in China are likely to be deployed in end-use applications in China. I'm not saying that they might not export some of it. Some of it might get exported, particularly to their Asia partners. Um, but they're not necessarily reliant on the U.S. to export their batteries. Changing tracks a little bit, looking at copper. One of the things you note is that recycling copper actually uses 85% less energy than mining it. Like what um, what companies are actually doing this? Is this the big mining companies that are actually diversifying or are these complete new players and a potential opportunity for a more fragmented market? They're, they're not the big miners, actually. So the big miners usually um, don't specialize in the recycling process. Uh, oftentimes, the companies that are most involved in recycling of metals, including copper, but also including many of the other things, uh, they're usually these specialized hydrometallurgical firms that are actually doing the refining. So again, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean companies, and then also some companies in Europe, are very specialized in this in this process. And they, they work more like chemicals than they do um, in what we traditionally think of as, as metals mining. Um, and these are the companies that have uh, the most opportunity to gain in a world where increasingly recycling and scrap um, becomes a bigger part of um, the overall supply chain. We understand that batteries are increasingly relying upon nickel in their composition and decreasing the amount of cobalt they're actually using. Is this driven by human rights and and wanting to make that pivot, or is there some other reason that the battery compositions are changing so dramatically? It's uh, two different reasons, basically, but they're interrelated. So um, the desire or move towards higher nickel cathode chemistries is mostly um, the need to drive higher energy density in the battery packs, and higher nickel cathode chemistries generally have been are are, are moving in in that direction. But the problem is um, in the traditional designs of higher nickel cathode chemistries, you almost always need cobalt as a part of that. So for instance, um, Tesla's NCA batteries require cobalt. And many of the battery makers and the automakers don't, they're not comfortable with having that much exposure to cobalt in their supply chains because cobalt is risky, not just from a reputational issue of human rights, but uh, also just because um, the political instability in the market that it comes from does mean that there can be occasional disruptions to the supply chain. 
question on that. I used to be in the industry, micro industry, I don't know what you'd call it, of geothermal. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend in the industry who actually owned a cobalt mine or cobalt outfit in Idaho. And it was called U.S. Cobalt. Yeah, they've been bought out by um, First Cobalt now, I think. Have they? I think so, yeah. Idaho, like Iron Creek or something it's called. Okay. Well, my question on that is, I mean, is is DRC the only option for cobalt mining? Or are there domestic, you know, U.S. supplies or supplies elsewhere that could be That's a really good question, actually. So, um, like I said earlier, 70% of the mined cobalt is mined in the DRC, right? But 30% is mined outside the um, the DRC. And right now, the main um, sources of it are um, essentially Cuba, um, Morocco, (laughs) yeah, uh, Morocco, um, so Boazer is one of the oldest operating pure cobalt mines in the world. Um, and then cobalt is also produced as a byproduct um, of nickel um, uh, uh, production in some places in Southeast Asia as well as Russia. So there is... Um, oh, like Flores. Mm-hmm. On Indonesia. Yeah, okay. Right. So there are some cobalt production um, outside of the DRC, and there's a lot of interest uh, amongst junior and mid-sized miners to explore for pure cobalt plays um, outside of the DRC because they believe there might be a potential premium in terms of the supply chain, a supply chain premium value for non-DRC cobalt. And we see this playing out a little bit, right? So you have companies like Umicor um, promising that they're definitely going to have only non-DRC cobalt and then therefore buying cobalt only from Glencore's production, Miramurin, in um, Australia. Mm-hmm. As well as possibly uh, the Euromap um, asset in Morocco, um, and then um, but the problem is if every single one of the major battery manufacturers or automakers like BMW all want to buy non-DRC cobalt, there's not enough cobalt in the world to do that. Um, the problem is um, cobalt prices right now are not quite high enough to really sustain the independent discovery, exploration, and development of a standalone cobalt asset. You'd have to have a really insanely high concentration to be able to do that in terms of the ore grade. Um, and Is that what's unique about the cobalt and DRC? Um, so the cobalt and DRC is actually produced as a byproduct of copper. Oh, um, and okay. so the DRC actually makes more money from copper than it does from cobalt. But cobalt uh, was really hot for a little while because so the prices So why couldn't you go up. to Peru or somewhere like that? Um, because the cobalt doesn't occur in high volumes the way that uh, in Peru. I actually... Cobalt, I, for those so, listening, I'm just asking that because Peru has a lot of copper. Yes, yeah. Peru has a lot of copper, but cobalt doesn't always just occur with copper. Oh, okay. Um, and it doesn't always... It's not... So they're not... Um, inclusive or like there, it's not a requirement to necessarily occur with copper sometimes it occurs with nickel it's like all rock in the earth it kind Got of it. occurs in varying degrees but um okay. the the drc does happen to be one of the best deposits in the world for both copper and cobalt in terms of the quality of the intensity of the grade um yeah so it's it's very rare to develop a pure standalone cobalt asset um most cobalt assets that are producing now are byproducts of either copper or nickel boazir in morocco is the own is the only large scale commercially producing pure cobalt play in the is it, world. Is it bright blue? <laughs> it's, yeah, cobalt is I mean, bright blue. I mean, is the mine bright blue? In oh, no, I don't. I don't, oh, okay. I don't know. I don't I would, know. I have to go back and look at it, look at it physically. <laughs> I would just want to see that. <laughs> Given that these lithium-ion batteries are being used in cars and for power storage, and then additionally for consumer electronics that we all consume, looks like there's a lot of stuff that is actually going to rely on these batteries. Do you foresee the material prices, the metal prices going way up as this demand looks like it just almost has a limitless appetite? I think a lot of companies that are investing into new assets are betting that the prices of these commodities will come back up. We've seen short-term spikes, right? So lithium went through a pretty high period um, just a year ago. Cobalt also just a year ago was quite high and it came back down um, about 
really like eight, 10 months ago. Um, Nickel is experiencing a bit of a surge now also on the EV thesis. <laughs> We're basically seeing this kind of like cascade effect where basically every time somebody who likes EV batteries discovers a new metal, they all pour their money into it and then it surges and then it comes back down when they realize once everybody has enough information about supply and demand. So um, I feel like in the metals industry, and this is a thing that everybody sort of talks about, there's no such thing as a true shortage. Like we didn't stop using bronze because we ran out of bronze, right? Like, and this is the same thing. We didn't stop using oil because we ran out of oil. Um, there's no such thing as like a true scarcity in the sense that there isn't enough of the resource. Mm. It's always just about is the price high enough to support the development of the next incremental um, tonnage that needs to come into the market to support uh, the future demand. Um, the market generally has proven to be pretty efficient in terms of pricing signals to the uh, miners um, to sort of uh, to the resource level to basically tell everybody you need to bring this much more material up to the market to supply future demand. In the lithium market, there's some debate about whether or not this is actually true, uh, being because a lot of producers in the market are saying that the lithium price is too low to support a lot of the new um, material that needs to come into the market to support uh, the future demand. Um, and our view is it, it can it can vary like around ten thousand per ton. I think is actually still a pretty good supporting price, um, but it does it does kind of um, raise the question of there's a lot of assets that are in the supply curve right now who have not finished fundraising and um, their total costs when you include both the mining as well as the conversion capacity costs uh, could potentially be is a little higher than what the the current. Um, hmm prices. Um, and so there's there's a question of like, well, maybe the prices need to come back up in order to support it. But regardless, actually, we have a battery metals um, commodity price sensitivity tool that we've built. And, um, uh, you know, our users can explore that tool to sort of see what the impact would be. But we looked at it and it was like, you know, prices for lithium, cobalt, nickel can pretty much double um, and even, even in some cases triple. And the overall impact on the overall cost of the battery pack itself is you know, something to like three to five percent, maybe Why in terms is that? of fluctuation. Well, um, so the so overall, the battery packs are also becoming more efficient about how they use materials. So the energy density is improving, but the size of the battery pack is not increasing necessarily. So you're you're being able to find new chemistries where you're exponentially increasing the energy density and performance of the battery, not necessarily having to also exponentially increase the use of the usage of your battery. So your per per ton of material results of, you know, battery performance is also improving. You're getting um, more out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're getting more out of it. So what you're telling me is that there is enough supply to go around and there's enough of this in the earth, but it's an issue of getting it out. Now, we've established with the issue of the Congo that you've got a lot of it in one location that can prove to be a problem depending upon who's sitting on top of it. Some of the other metals, are they in difficult locations? Are some of them under rainforests or under major cities and things that are going to make it difficult potentially? Are we going to reach a peak metals for some of the metals that go into the battery metal space? Um, no, I don't think so right now. Um, there's There are definitely environmental damages that might occur, though. So this is actually a huge issue for lithium. Um, so lithium um, is primarily produced from two types of deposits right now, um, either spodumene, which is hard rock lithium, um, and a lot of that is coming from Australia, or brine which is like salt water, essentially, um, lithium. The brine um, is, it used to be traditionally the, the, the majority of lithium produced, um, actually now it's shifting more towards spodumene. Um, brine is primarily located in the salars uh, of Latin America on like the high altitudes between, it's basically the lithium triangle between Argentina, um, Bolivia, and uh, Chile. And um, those deserts, those like high altitude deserts, have an extreme scarcity of water. Now, um, salars, these salty brines, these lithium brine deposits, 
the producers, they, they obtain what they call pumping rights um, to pump the salt water from this um, brine deposit um, into surface level ponds, which are then go through various levels of evaporation in order to turn, be turned into a high enough lithium concentrate can then, that can be shipped off to their plant to be converted into a lithium chemical used for batteries. So that's the process. Um, there's been a lot of controversy over how much water is being pumped from these brines, because even though the water in these brines are not drinkable, so these are not humans drinking water from these things. Um, they do still um, have potential relationship to the overall water table of the region. Now, it's kind of, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm not going to say specifically which way we lean. We're actually writing an in-depth research on this in the second half of the year to look at how the lithium industry can reduce its water usage. Um, but um, for, for right now, though, there's controversy around this issue. And um, basically, although the lithium producers in the region say that they're in compliance with the pumping rights that they were granted to them by the regulators of the region, activists in the region say that the regulators don't actually understand how this entire ecosystem is interconnected and believe that they have allocated pumping rights that are probably too high and will eventually destroy um, these very delicate ecosystems. Um, there's some evidence to prove that it may already be the case, right? So the um, salars are uh, natural homes for flamingos and other endangered species, and um, the population has diminished and, and are suffering. But there's debate as to whether or not the reason that's causing, it's, the, the factors causing that are because of lithium production specifically, or because um, water usage in the region is much heavier from copper. Um, and then also tourism actually uses a lot of water as well. So there's a lot of debate right now in that region. So this is an example of another environmental or resource level limitation on the future growth of these material supply chains. There was a bit of movement in 2008, 2009 about doing the same type of thing in the Salton Sea area in California, mm -hmm. a company called Symbol Mining is a mm -hmm. startup that I think they were ahead of their time price-wise, right? So the price just couldn't support lithium development at that time. I heard there was kind of a, a kicking again last year uh, when the price kind of spiked, but is there any more movement there in the U.S.? There's a lot of interest, I think. So it's around Clayton Valley, um, uh, Nevada. There's there's okay. definitely some interest in developing lithium assets inside of the U.S. There's also some look at uh, California. Um, I think there's one small asset, i got to go back and look at the exact name, that is producing um, some already, but not much. Uh, the majority of lithium that's being looked at in North America is actually in Canada. And then there's also a really interesting asset that Balkanara... But I assume that's the, what, what, the hard rock... That's going to be spodumene. Spodumene, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, so Namaska Lithium is looking at spodumene. There's a few other uh, juniors that are looking at it there. Um, and then in Mexico, Bacanara is looking at a, a clay asset, a lithium clay asset. Oh, wow. That seems pretty interesting as well. Yeah, so I'd like to go back to the trade war a little bit, actually. Sure. So earlier, I think um, there's com there's oftentimes a, um, a misframing of the trade war question when it comes to the battery supply chain. Everybody sort of frames it like, oh, I don't want to import batteries from China. Um, but it's not about importing the batteries. It's not even about importing physical product. Um, and I think a lot of regulators need to think about it in this way, which is it's about security of the supply chain. And it's about whether or not a stakeholder like China, not necessarily only China, um, may exercise control over a, a large enough control over um, a certain part of the supply chain that it could become a bottleneck. So, for instance, I think a lot of the what informs the trade war now, especially when it comes to resources, is um, what happened to Japan with rare earths and China sort of quote unquote, restricting the export of rare earths to Japan a few years, this was like 10 years ago. And so Japan had a very hard lesson learned during that time period when prices spiked and all of its producers faced a legitimate bottleneck to their, to their um, overall uh, um, supply chain. And I think um, the U.S. and many other um, uh, 
regions in the world, including the EU, including Australia, including Canada, who are all moving in this direction of trying to um, consolidate uh, and improve their national strategies towards the battery supply chain, are aware of this. And this is the security, underlying security fear that drives a movement towards um, quote-unquote trade war around battery supply chains. What's sad, though, is that it's been framed in a context of a trade war when really it shouldn't be. It's not about restricting the flow of materials. It's about increasing the amount of the value add of that supply chain in your own market. And the reason why I, con I, context, I um, context it like that is there's actually a lot of private sector companies involved in the sector. Um, and just like their Japanese and Korean counterparts are happy to invest into Europe, into the U.S. to build new assets. It's just like the solar industry. Um, the solar industry, after they got tariffs put on them and they couldn't export PV modules to the U.S. anymore, they went and built factories in other countries and then still were exporting the PV modules. Um, and the same thing could happen to the battery industry. But we could save the battery industry a lot of pain <laughs> that the solar industry had to go through, which was 10 years of trade war before, well, not 10 years, maybe five years of trade war before everybody figured out that everybody was just hurting and that it was just, you know, preventing people from, from getting good product. Um, and instead focusing on uh, maybe diversifying the location and the ownership of the, of the supply chain. It's not, so it's not just about always focusing on the physical like where this product is coming from kind of thing. Does that make sense at all? Yes. Good. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was really great. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.